Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And today we are bringing you another uh, question and answer episode, but this one is a little different than any of the episodes we have recorded previously. Father, why is that? Because we're doing it live. We have listeners actually looking at our digital faces and asking us digital questions um, about real issues. And so this is, while the final one that will be uploaded to the podcast stream will be quite edited and cut, I'm sure, you who are listening right now are going to get the real raw sacramentalists. The sacramentalists uncut. Uncut edition. The director's edition. I don't know. What <laughs> Priest <else>? gone wild. <laughs> See, that's going to be cut from the real one. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. Maybe it should stay in. Maybe not. Maybe not. All right. Well, uh, Father, take us away. Jump us into a, a question. And we hope All right, that you... So, well, before we do that, maybe we should explain briefly. Um, so for those of you who are watching on Facebook or on Zoom, um, you know, as we're talking, if you have questions that you... Uh, want us to elaborate on or to talk about, we are happy to do that. Uh, but we also were collecting questions for the past week or so. So we have a number of um, sort of pre-written down questions that we've had some time to think about. So uh, we obviously reserve the right to not answer your question if it's above our pay grade as well. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we, uh, we're we not as good as thinking on our feet. The, we have to plan everything out, you know. So let's start with the first prepared question. Uh, the first prepared question comes from Lucas. Uh, and this is kind of a softball. He asks, uh, who is your favorite saint? Mm. Father, who's your favorite saint? Oh, well, definitely. So saints, of course, are defined outside of uh, the Godhead. So we get to talk about any other created being. So how can I say anyone but the Blessed Virgin Mary, Theotokos, Mother of God? Uh, I love Mary. I love kind of pondering and meditating on her role in our salvation. That is, she as we uh, thought about yesterday at the Annunciation, she said yes to the angel, the divine visitor. She reversed in many, uh, in a poetic way, what happened to Eve in the garden, who said kind of no to God, but yes to the divine visitor, the serpent, who was Satan. So Mary, I think, is fascinating. I think she gets a lot of short shrift uh, because Protestants and even a lot of Anglicans are scared of her. So that's definitely a saint uh, that would say is my favorite. But when I think about maybe saint theologians or some other saints throughout church history. Athanasius holds a dear place in my heart because it was really reading him for the first time that started me on this journey of saying, hey, I should care what the church fathers think. And then after that, I would say Bernard of Clairvaux. He's a great medieval saint. And then Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Yeah, I think for me, it's largely similar. Our Lady is an obvious one. Uh, and we're also doing an episode on her with Bishop Chad uh, pretty soon. Uh, my birthday is on St. George's feast day, so I do feel sort of partial to him as well. Uh, but I think my favorites who are theological contributors would be uh, Athanasius, because just like you, Father, uh, it was picking up on the incarnation uh, that kind of caused me to eventually become Anglican. Um, but also Anselm of Canterbury is another favorite of mine, and uh, also Thomas Aquinas, uh, too. So um, those would be my favorites. Now, the great comment by Father Mike is uh, Jerome, patron saint of grumpy clergy, which is a good one. Isn't that true? <laughs> so, all right. Uh, next question, uh, also from Lucas. Uh, top Anglican theology books. Mm, yeah, that's a... Uh... 
That's a good one. And I think that I find a lot of people asking me that question. Heck, I found myself asking that question uh, because it seems like there aren't a lot of super good ones out there, especially ones that have been written recently, specifically addressing Anglicanism. But here are some. They're they're older, but these would say are my top three. Um, Corpus Christi by Mascal is is an incredible book that really dives in, in my mind, into Anglican sacramentology and what is the Mass for us. So it's very hard to get your hands on, and if you do get your hands on it, make sure you get the second edition. The next one I think is really uh, really great, and it was very influential for in my own life, is The Christian Priest Today by Archbishop Ramsey. Even if you're not a priest or never plan to be a priest, I still think it's an incredible book that dives into what is the function of a priest, because if you're in an Anglican church, hopefully, there's some rare exceptions, you're going to have a priest that you're interacting with on a regular basis. So if you can find out the function of a priest, you'll find out the function of how you relate to the priest and then to the rest of the world. And then another one by Ramsey that I think I think gets some short shrift sometimes is the gospel in the Catholic Church. And I think the book does a really good job of showing that this divide that often Anglicans create between the Catholic side of things and the evangelical or Protestant side of things is really a false dichotomy that the Catholic side of things, the episcopacy, the sacraments, they evangelize us. They bring us the gospel and they exist because of the gospel. And you cannot have one without the other. There's no such thing as a naked gospel message. It needs to be incarnational and contextualized within the historic episcopate. So those are mine. What about you, Father? It's a good you resisted the word missional there. Oh, um, I'm I'm very missional. <laughs> we believe it. Okay, uh, my so there there is one answer to this question I think, and it is um, Christ the Christian and the Church, yeah. also by Mascal. Um, those three books that you listed, Father, are exceptional and and very important. But um, I think that Christ the Christian and the Church really has to be at least for an Anglo-Catholic. Um, the jumping off point as far as how we do theology um, and uh, and what our theology looks like. Uh, so Mascal does a fantastic job uh, beginning with the incarnation um, and the council of Chalcedon and then he uh, uses that Christology to establish what is the church and then after uh, after detailing for us what the church is, he then uh, articulates what it means to be a Christian because to be a Christian uh, presupposes that there is a church to be a part of. Um, so I think that that book uh, really is, is a wonderful place to start if you're looking uh, for Anglican theology uh, resources. Um, yeah, and of and course, I... Corpus Christi, I think, is overlaps in certain places on, on, with a lot of the topics that he discusses. Yeah, and I want to defend myself. You answered the question first on our notes, and so <laughs> yeah. I, the, my answers were um, written thinking you were going to answer it first on the podcast, so don't think I'm a lesser person. I, too, think Christ the Christian in the Church is probably the best Anglican theological book written in the past hundred years. One other book that might be uh, important to mention, too, is Vernon Staley's uh, The Catholic Religion, which oh, is yeah. also a good a good start. That That's especially good if... Um, you're sort of coming in from outside and you, you're not very familiar with uh, what Anglicanism is at all. Yeah, I think that's a great simple, and not simplistic, but simple, easy-to-read introduction uh, that, that does well to get people on into thinking in the Anglican way. Because I think that's what it is to be Anglican, is it's not so much a, uh, a, a theological 
how do I put this? This is not so much a theological propositional set that you assent to. We've said this on the podcast. It's a mode of doing theology and way of living out the Christian life. And because of that, it's hard to ascertain through books. But these books help, I think, show it rather than explain it. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. Next question. Next question. So we're getting into a category of questions that are uh, ecclesiological. Uh, And this note is from uh, Marcel, who says, hello again. Months ago, I asked of orthodoxy. That was our last question and answer episode. Kind of why aren't you uh, Eastern Orthodox? But now I would like to know, uh, what's the problem with Roman Catholicism in an Anglo-Catholic perspective? Basically, the papacy or is there something equally important as far as not being Roman Catholic? Uh, he's been studying the three branches of the church. He puts branches in quotes because he's struggling to maintain his Presbyterianism as coherent with the ancient church and Episcopal apostolic secession. Uh, historical churches are uh, only these three, meaning Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Anglicanism. So uh, what do we do uh, with that? Yeah, well, first off, good job um, wrestling with these things and trying to see how they mesh with the tradition you're in, Presbyterianism. I think those are good questions. And we are going to do an episode on apostolic succession soon because we keep getting this question a lot. So uh, be looking for that. But uh, Father Wesley, why aren't you Roman Catholic? Well, I think that one of the things that Marcel gets right in the question is this idea of three uh, branches of the church. Uh, I, I think Branch theory is often mocked uh, these days, um, and I think it may have been partly because Newman uh, found it unsustainable in his own walk, but uh, I think he kind of talked himself into a corner. So I think branch theory is generally a an accurate hypothesis for how we uh, explain what the church is. Um, so then it becomes a question of, well, why aren't you Orthodox, which we've already answered, and why aren't you Roman Catholic? So for me, uh, the big ones are the innovative uh, doctrines of papal infallibility uh, and the Immaculate Conception as well. Um, I think, and we'll get into this with Bishop Chad uh, in a few weeks here, but um, I think that the Marian dogma of Immaculate Conception is problematic because if it is true, uh, then she receives a, um, or I'm sorry, Christ receives a nature uh, that is not like our nature. Um, and that becomes difficult when we say that what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. Um, further, I think that uh, there are some soteriological doctrines where while I appreciate uh, a lot of the emphases that Roman Catholicism makes, I think that they are uh, less satisfactory. So one of the things, and we talked about this in our Paul episode that I think Anglo-Catholicism allows us to do, is affirm the best parts of the Roman soteriological system while also um, accepting the best parts of the Protestant soteriological system. So if you remember, we talked uh, not about um, imputation or impartation, but incorporation into Christ, uh, a more organic metaphor there than either of those two uh, extremes. And I think that that's uh, kind of a helpful way for us to move forward is sort of a via media between the two classical positions. Um, So largely, those would be my problems with uh, Roman Catholicism. So if they could uh, fix the papacy, which they have kind of they can at this point, but if they could, uh, that would be great. And um, if they were willing to uh, adapt on some of the Marian dogmas and on their soteriology, then I could probably have an easier time becoming Roman Catholic. 
Yeah, I think that all that you've said, Father Wesley, is something that sums it up for me as well. It's the innovative dogma. Um, and, and what I mean by that maybe is a bit different than what you mean. I think that you're, you're objecting to the Immaculate Conception, for example, kind of as it is. I think I would object more so. We can discuss the Immaculate Conception all day long. I object to the fact that it is dogmatized, that you must hold to it. Uh, that to me is the problem, that it seems as if what happened in the 1800s at Vatican I when this was dogmatized has less to do with the theological conviction and more to do with the Pope trying to seize more authority in a world that was rising in nationalism and authority was falling away. So that to me is a huge problem. The soteriological stuff I think is is an issue. They still hold technically in the catechism to some version of the treasury of merit, uh, which I would say is is an issue. So I, I think this is hard, and it's a good question, but it's hard for people looking at Anglican, especially Anglo-Catholics, because while we might be closer to Rome than anyone else out there in our liturgy, in the way that we discuss theology, uh, I, I just still maintain that there are important, albeit subtle, differences between us and Roman Catholics. And then today, post-Vatican II, I think there's a whole nother level of reasons why I wouldn't particularly want to be a part of Roman Catholicism. I think that the Novus Ordo, while I think that it's a valid mass, is the closest thing to banality that you can get to in many cases, not always. And so you're left with kind of this tension between new Roman Catholicism, old Roman Catholicism. Uh, it, can, it can be uh, hard and difficult. And then kind of there's an overarching um, hubris and, and they try not to have this, but there's a lot of, in Rome, we've said it, we've done it, this is the truth. Rome can never admit they're wrong. I heard one guy, he used to be Roman Catholic. He does a podcast, his name's Stephen Gautier, he does Word and Table podcast. And I was sitting around a, a living room with him one time and talking. And he was raised French-Canadian, Roman Catholic. And he said, uh, he said, I found out quickly growing up that when you know that Roman Catholicism is wrong is when they stand up and say, as the church has always taught, and then they say something. So it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment, but there is some truth to the fact that Rome sets itself within this context of not being able to admit their own change. But that's more, that's not something that is, that's something that perhaps could change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, very good. Uh, let's see. So Hunter asks this question, and he actually asked it uh, previously at uh, the last Q&A that we did, but I think he uh, put it in so late that we weren't able to put it in for consideration. Um, but uh, the question is, I want to hear from you guys about Pado communion versus First Communion at six or seven years old. All right. So I let's, – let's, let's just define the terms for people. There is a growing push – in some Western contexts, particularly those who have been influenced by um, some reform thinkers, those who are familiar with the, uh, what's it called, the Federal Vision Group of Reform Thinkers, Peter Lightheart, Jim Jordan, um, Rich Lusk, where they're pushing for pedo communion, infants taking the sacrament. And I've actually read books on this, and I know that there's a lot of Anglicans, and I, I would have been in that camp at one time, where are really pushing for this practice. Um, and I've I've seen it done a lot in some ACNA churches. So, is that valid? Is it not? Well, let's just say that the historic Anglican approach has been you have to be confirmed before you take Holy Communion. And I would also say that's been the historic Catholic approach, meaning small c, kind of all Christendom in the patristic church. Now, that what's often raised by these people who are pushing for Pado Communion is 
What about Eastern Orthodoxy? Eastern Orthodoxy, you can read Church Fathers, you can read Eastern sources. They've always given the Eucharist to infants. Even today, go to a baptism at your Greek church nearby, and that day the child will get the Eucharist, and they spoon it into their mouth. So if they've done it, then there's historic precedent, there's theological rationale, but I think there's one major difference that the reform, this kind of reform camp that's pushing for it doesn't recognize, or they recognize it, but they don't, it, it doesn't play into their theology, and that is even these infants in Eastern Orthodoxy have been confirmed. They've received, in an Orthodox lingo, the sacrament of chrismation. So in the Western tradition, we've separated these two. You're baptized and then you're confirmed or chrismated, it's the same uh, concept, at a later time. And that then is your entrance into the Eucharist. So when you look at an Eastern Orthodox practice and say, but they give it to infants, you then have to recognize they're also giving them confirmation. Confirmation doesn't play into a reform camp because they don't only believe in two sacraments. And so I think that's kind of the issue going on is that the universal church says you have to be confirmed before you receive the Eucharist, or at least they did until recently. The Roman Catholic Church allows this first communion practice and then confirmation later. But I have friends in the Roman church and they're trying to push back. There's a big push. They're calling it restored order, confirmed then communion. So I think the stance in traditional Anglicanism, it's in the prayer book at the end of the rite for confirmation. It says, no one should receive the Holy Eucharist except those who are confirmed or desirous thereof. So I submit myself to that. What does it mean to be desirous thereof? I think there's some open interpretation to that. Maybe it's um, the bishop can't come by to confirm you. Maybe you're a visitor and you have the desire of Jesus, but you don't know you need to be confirmed. Stuff like this. So we can be flexible, but I think we need to push that the church has always practiced confirmation. It comes after baptism before communion. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I largely agree. I think confirmation has become in the West a very devalued sacrament, kind of a lost sacrament. Um, and so I think that we need to insist on an order that uh, places a certain degree of dignity on that sacrament um, and important. Uh, importance on it. But also, um, I think we should caveat too that at least in our jurisdiction, uh, where this is a, a, man, a matter of the what the church has told us to do, um, we do push for early confirmations. So, you know, like I went to one of my best friends growing up, he was uh, Roman Catholic, and I went to his confirmation, and he was like 15, 14 or 15. Um, we wouldn't necessarily wait that long uh, for someone. Uh, to to uh, be confirmed, we would want to do it earlier rather than later, so that those children can participate uh, in um, the sacramental life of the church uh, for sure. Uh, I also think that there is a degree of um, self reflection involved in the sacrament, and I know my uh, Miles, we might disagree on this a little bit, but um, you know, Paul in First Corinthians eleven tells us uh, that we have to. Um, be reflective uh, about taking the Eucharist. And as far as whether an infant can do that, uh, or, or even, you know, I don't know how we're defining infant necessarily as far as age, but I would just be concerned about unworthy reception, which I do think matters, not in the objective sense. The sacrament's not changed because the infant um, can or can't self-reflect, but that, you know, what they're doing might be um, 
yeah, it could it just could lead to some problems. So I think it's better to wait until they're a little bit older and they have a mode of self-reflection uh, that's a little bit more developed. Yeah, and I think I would probably push back against that and say that uh, these concepts of reflection and while they're good, and Paul does definitely bring them up, they have to be met to the certain context of an individual. So to, to force an infant to have to self-reflect before receiving the sacrament seems to be comparing apples and oranges in my mind. And so I would think that there is a way in which a child, even a five or six-year-old, can do some self-reflection. And, you know, if the kid is in kind of open rebellion to their parents that day, you know, hey, you're not at love and charity with your neighbor. And parents would do well to kind of tell the priest and say, all right, you, you know, you've got to repent of this before you can take communion or something like that. And so uh, I, I would, what I would be pushing for the most is confirmation, whatever you want to call that sacrament needs to come before communion in most, that's the normal order that the church gives to us. And so I would be all about restoring in the Western tradition, confirmation to infants, but that's above my pay grade, and so I'll just keep submitting. The prayer book says you have to know the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments to get confirmed. So it's not like we're talking about a theology course. It's a pretty low bar. Now, I'm glad that we take the opportunity to have a catechesis confirmation class. I was talking with a West, uh, Eastern Orthodox priest the other day, and he was lamenting the fact that he has nothing to do. There's no, there's no goal for his youth to, to strive towards. And he says he felt especially the boys need something to do. There's no confirmation class. There's no coming of age. There's no bar mitzvah. There's no in the, I'm thinking like tribal cultures, going out with the men and elders of the tribe and going on your first hunt type idea. Um, And he says because they've received it all as infants, there's no structured opportunity to teach them the faith. And as much as he was saying, we think the liturgy catechizes there's still something to have in an actual class. So there are benefits. Yeah. We did get two, um, well, three technically interesting comments here. So Father Steve says, in current rites of Anglicanism, infants are also chrismated. The signing of a cross in the oil on the forehead of the infant. It seems to me that Anglicanism draws from both the best of both East and West. Infants are chrismated and confirmed later in life. Yeah. Um, So it is interesting in the new rites, there was a, if you look at the new rites after the 70s in Anglicanism, there seems to be this interest in trying to unite East and West. And so you do bring into the East, into Anglicanism, this anointing uh, with oil and even saying you have been marked with the Holy Spirit or sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. So there's something of a mini confirmation. But the fact that we still do confirmation later shows that whatever's going on there is something of an anointing, a symbolic uh, action that is not to the level of confirmation. And so I don't think I would be comfortable calling whatever goes on there chrismation because the church has taught that confirmation produces an indelible mark in the soul, meaning it can't be repeated. So the fact that we are repeating, lex orandi, lex credendi, our liturgy is teaching us that that is not confirmation. And then Father Mike uh, responds by asking, I think, an important question here, and it's what does discerning the body really mean? And he has in mind 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. 
So Father Mike is on our board of examining chaplains, so we have to be very careful how we answer this. We've already um, passed. That's true. Hopefully they can't revoke that or anything. But so I would read that as almost a double entendre uh, on Paul's part. Um, so up until this point uh, in the book of Corinthians, he's used uh, soma, which means body, uh, two different ways. Right. So on the one hand, starting in chapter 10, he uses it in explicitly Eucharistic ways. Right. So um, one of the reasons why you shouldn't eat and drink uh, from uh, meat sacrificed to idols and other things offered to idols is because the cup that you drink from is a participation in the blood of Christ and the bread that you eat is a participation in the body of Christ. And so those things really can't mix with each other. So on the one hand, soma, the body, uh, especially in terms of the Eucharist, refers to Christ being present, I think, in the elements. But on the other hand, He's also used the term body to refer to the church. Uh, so one of the problems going on in Corinth and throughout chapter 11 is that uh, there are uh, people who are eating and drinking in a gluttonous way. Uh, and um, and so in, in so doing, they're depriving other people of receiving the benefits of the Eucharist. And so they're not really functioning as a body, which is an image that Paul uses throughout the book of Corinthians to discuss things like um, uh, sexual ethics and uh, the use of spiritual gifts in the church, things like that. Um, so I think that there's a two-dimensional component to discerning the body, right? There's this idea that when we go to the altar, we're being united to Christ and his body, but also we're being united to the church body. And so discerning the body then, uh, which is an interesting phrase, in my mind seems like uh, an awareness of both of those things, um, being aware that you are uh, receiving Christ, but also that you are um, being further conjoined to this body that is his church. Miles, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? He also said we reserve the right of a board of examining chaplains recall. So be careful. Oh, great. Okay. Um, here we go. I think that what Paul is doing, much like what you said, is he is connecting the social dimension of the sacrament to its ontological reality. What does that mean? That he is saying, as you approach this bread and this wine, and I think he uses bread there. The reason he doesn't mention wine is because of what you just said. It's this double play on the word body with the, the church as well as with the sacramental body. And, but he, but it, ta it means the whole sacrament. As you approach the sacrament, do you not realize that it's a sacrament of unity? And if you are causing disunity, if you are not discerning what this sacrament actualizes, which is unity with Christ and throughout the church as his one body, if you do not discern that because your actions play into disunity in the church, then that is eating and drinking condemnation because you are not stepping into the reality that the sacrament creates. Now, I'll just throw this in there. This is the argument that those like Peter Lightheart make about pedo communion is that an infant cannot be in this sort of disunity, i.e. undiscerning of the body. And therefore, this really does not apply to them categorically. Now, you know, the historical church, and I, I, I'm reminded here, I think Lutherans are very strong on the point of saying, no, this means you have to believe in the objective real presence. And so this is why they don't let people who don't believe in the real presence, traditionally, even take the sacrament. You can be a professed Christian, but as, if you're Reformed or Baptist or et cetera, et cetera, 
you and you don't believe in the objective real presence, you can't take because you might eat and drink damnation. So there you go. Did we pass Father Mike? We'll see. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> oh, oh, me neither. All right, so let's move on before we get ourselves in any trouble. Um, Melvin asks the question, uh, and he prefaces this by saying maybe controversial, which is, of course, why we uh, included it. Um, he said, <laughs> "He said your episode on Anglican orders seemed to restrict discussion to orders for churches using the older prayer books, which he's right. Uh, Bishop Chad did make that clarification. What's, the, uh, what's your and the APA stance on orders in the ACNA? I'm sorry, yours and the APA stance on the orders in the ACNA. Let's restrict to just male clergy for obvious reasons. So what he's saying is that in our episode, we, uh, where we talked about whether Anglican orders are valid or not, we only discussed uh, ordinations using the 1662 or the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, not the 1979 or the 2019. Um, so he wants to know what our personal opinions are and that of our jurisdiction when it comes to the ACNA. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with the um, alphabet soup of the Anglican world, the APA is the jurisdiction that Father Miles and I are a part of. It's been in existence since the 1960s and 70s, um, and it's part of what's called the continuum, the continuing Anglican churches. And these churches uh, broke off from the Episcopal Church uh, over issues like women's ordination and uh, updating and revising the prayer books. The ACNA broke off from the Episcopal Church in the mid-2000s, and that was over the consecration of an openly gay, non-celibate bishop named V. Jean Robinson. Um, so uh, the ACNA, the, the continuum is pretty conservative overall. The ACNA is kind of what we would maybe call moderate to conservative, so there's really more of a range of views uh, within the ACNA. Uh, some bishops ordain women uh, to the diaconate. Some bishops ordain women to the diaconate and to the priesthood. Uh, and other bishops don't do either of those things. So you have a wide range of views there. They do have it enshrined in their uh, constitution that women can't be uh, bishops. So they can be everything but a bishop. Um, so uh, I think that we've spoken about these topics somewhat gingerly because we don't want to be super critical. Um, but we do have to be careful because women's ordination does change the intention of the church in the right that it operates in. So like one concerning thing about the 2019 BCP, I, I would argue, is that it italicizes the pronoun of the person being ordained so that it can be changed. Um, and I think that that represents a pretty marked departure from the not only the Anglican tradition, but the tradition of the church. So that said, I've talked to um, some people in the APA about this. And, uh, you know, the conclusion that was reached was that a, a an Orthodox bishop could use the 2019's ordinal and be fine uh, because it doesn't really remove anything essential other than the italicized pronouns. Um, also, I think it's important, if you remember back to the episode with Bishop Chad, he made an important distinction when it comes to talking about validity between different types of validity. So, on the one hand, validity is a subjective term, meaning those with whom our jurisdiction is in communion or those with whom we recognize valid orders. Um, 
However, there is a more objective sense to the term, which speaks to sacramental efficacy and the assurance of uh, of the sacrament. So subjectively, the APA and the ACNA are not in communion with each other. Uh, and at one point, and I, I verified this with Bishop Chad, we still have this relationship. We are called ministry partners, which means that when, when possible, we... Um, we partner with each other to do ministry, like the name would imply, um, but that we're not uh, in the same type of communion where we can just uh, have clergy bounce from one to the other, uh, which is true in the continuing church. We have uh, three other jurisdictions that we're in communion with where you know a priest in the APA can go serve an ACC church or the ACC priest can go serve uh, you know the ACA, wh- however that works, so we can share clergy because we are confident of orders, but the ACNA question is a little bit more um, difficult. I was just going to say, I, th- I would just err on the side of saying I'm pretty confident, given the caveats he gave, an Orthodox bishop, male ordination, I, I think that I would, you know, say, yeah, probably. And that's, and that's, you know, that was my ordination and that's what the bishops in the APA told me. Yeah, yeah, probably valid, but you know, there's, there's, there, you know, all of these conversations about sacramental validity, whether it's the Eucharist, baptism, orders, it all has to come to, it all comes down to assurance. And so how can you be sure? And those are the, um, those are the questions. And, and at the end of the day, sometimes we can't. And that's why uh, some people coming into something like the APA, they'll do what's called an ordination subcondicione, a conditional ordination, because if we're not sure, we want to make sure we're sure. And so that's an ordination where it's kind of, if you have not already been ordained, I ordain you type idea. And uh, it was great because Father Miles and I got conditionally reordained on the same days at the same time. So it was cool. I like yeah, that. It was cool. So I've got a couple. I've got a question here if I could do it, Father. Um, sure. We, we were asked beforehand, and I think these two questions relate. Ian asked, is drive-by communion a good idea? And I said no. And so another question that I want to ask, because I think Ian's was kind of a joke, is this one. It says, during the current quarantine and this is from John Walnut, I've seen a lot of pictures of people having, and he puts in quotes, communion at home, and then parentheses, having bread and wine while they watch a service streamed from their church, and have heard people suggest that consecration of elements can occur over the airwaves. I imagine I know your answer, but is this correct, and why or why not? So give a one-minute answer to that. Who, me? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, that's wrong. Uh, you definitely can't do that. Um, yeah, and it I takes think away the incarnational element of the sacrament. Absolutely. It, it does take away the incarnational element of the sacrament. The elements have to be consecrated in person by a priest. Uh, and so on the altar, we, on the altar. Right. And so when we start doing it that way, taking it home and, and having it live stream consecrated, Right. Uh, it just creates so many problems. It's it's really actually almost hard to even really answer the question, uh, <laughs> at least in a short amount of time. I mean, it really would belie a kind of um, Gnostic understanding of the sacraments, I think. Well, well, let me let me give you another scenario that was just recently explained to me. Uh, a fellow priest was visiting a, an, an Anglican church in a different jurisdiction, and the person, I believe it was a bishop, was celebrating. And oh, yeah. he, had, he had elements on the altar, but he kind of did his hand like this because there was a side table and he prayed and during the consecration he kind of did this and my friend noticed it because a he noticed why why are your hands doing things during the consecration and so uh they ran out of wine or bread or something during the distribution of the elements and the bishop just went over wherever it was i think it was a bishop went over to that table got stuff and just started passing it out 
And my friend was like, whoa, he's passing out unconsecrated elements. And he kind of said that loudly. And the person sitting close to him said, oh, you noticed that this was after the service. He says, but they weren't, they weren't unconsecrated. You know, he stretched his hand over that direction. So this is, this is some of those places where I just go, that is not regular. And that is not good. Did God work in that moment? Maybe, I don't know. Remember sacramental validity, but I know for sure he works when the bread and wine are on an altar and the bishop or priest lays hands and does his thing. So I, I think when we're trying to play fast and loose with what the church gave us, we're close, potentially close to what might be the sin of presumption. Ah, surely God will do this. Surely God will do this rather than treating it with more fear and trepidation. But maybe I'm being a fundamentalist. I don't think so. I think that's right. Father Steve reminds us that there's a prayer in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer for Spiritual Communion, mm -hmm. uh, which is true. And, uh, and you know, both of our parishes, we've been encouraging people uh, to tune in for a live stream of the Mass. And then when it comes to the point of the time, point of the service where they would go up to receive it, that they pray the prayer for spiritual communion that we've sent out to them, which I believe is from the 1951 um armed forces prayer book or something like that. So, yeah, sure. uh, anyways, uh, so, so yes, spiritual communion is good. Um, and spiritual communion, uh, which we did an episode recently on, right. So um, go listen to that. Yeah. It, it, you know, you're not using physical elements, but you're still participating in the sacrifice of Christ. That's and right. so that's really important. And I think that's good, but that's different than holding bread and wine like this in front like of your screen. screen. Yeah, and hoping that, you know, if the priest consecrates it, that it somehow applies. I think that would be dangerous. But spiritual communion is good and should be practiced. Two more quick questions from John Walnut. Maybe we can just answer these quickly. Is that all right? Okay, sure. Yeah, it says, uh, on the topic of confirmation, where is it descri described in Scripture? I've heard teaching on what confirmation is, but not really where it comes from and how it interacts with baptism. Coming from a more evangelical background where salvation happens all at once, when, for example, you say the sinner's prayer. I'm confused about how baptism saves you, but you must also be confirmed. So first thing I would say is uh, I was graciously invited to be on another podcast. This is uh, Dr. Gerald McDermott's podcast, Via Media, another Anglican podcast. And he had me discuss what he calls the five sacraments of the church, which are the ones that aren't baptism in the Eucharist. And I talk about this on there. So I would encourage you, John, and anyone who's confused about the relationship between confirmation and baptism, go listen to that. But you can find it on the Via Media website, which is on Beeson Divinity School website. But the quick answer is, is that confirmation is a further up and a further in of baptism. It is a it is a gifting, not a strengthening, not an outright gifting or giving of the Holy Spirit. So that's the short answer, is that baptism gives all that is necessary. Confirmation strengthens that gift and empowers you for living out your Christian life. Uh, where it is in Scripture... I don't have the verses in front of me, is simply those passages in the book of Acts where people are baptized, but then they receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of the apostles. And that's why we as Anglicans maintain the practice of a bishop, successor to the apostles, doing confirmation. So that's a quick answer. Anything you want to add to that, Father Wesley? Uh, no, definitely not. All right. And then another a final one from John Walnut that he's in the Zoom 
chat, and so I feel that I should give preference to his questions. He says, also, I've never really heard a good explanation on the passage about the, quote, keys. Maybe you want to save this for an episode on the theology of the sacrament of holy orders, but I'd love to hear a brief explanation of what that means. And he's talking about the passage, I think it's Matthew 16, where Jesus says, you have the keys of the kingdom, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then John chapter 20, I don't think the phrase keys is mentioned, but Jesus gives the power to the apostles to forgive sins and uses the same language. What it, what you have bound on earth has been bound in heaven. Father, any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, Roman Catholics obviously really like this uh, passage because they think it gives Peter uh, sort of per supremacy uh, out of which they derive a theology of the papacy. Um, I think that if you read the promises given to Peter, that is the binding and loosing, um, that same authority is given to the rest of the apostles. Um, and so I think that there's not a sub substantive difference between what's given to Peter in this passage and a kind of authority that is right. given to everyone. Um, so a lot has been made of uh, the Petrin passage, and uh, I think maybe a little bit uh, too much so. That's right. So I would just say the keys, the binding, the loosing speaks generally to the authority of the church. I'm thinking about the seven ecumenical councils, what they have bound on earth in terms of theology and dogma guided by the Holy Spirit is good and right. You should accept them, all of them. Um, and then and then in a particular case, it refers to the absolution given by a priest, which leads to an interesting question given to us on Facebook by Katie West. She says, is the absolution during a live stream mass valid if you are watching at home? I would say no. Okay. Then why would we do one? The same reason that we can't, well, I would, I do it because of the people who are still present with me. So for sure. example, the deacon is there. Um, and he needs his sins absolved. But uh, it's not a sacramental action, I don't think, if it's taking place over the airwaves like that. Yeah, I think I would just plead the fifth and say that's above my pay grade. <laughs> I I mean, I you know, the pronouncement, at least as it is in the 28 prayer book, is still good, I think, for people to hear. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the same thing as having your sins uh, absolved in person, and it's not the same thing as the sacrament of confession. So uh, I would just make a distinction there because because I couldn't hear your confession over Zoom or over Skype. So, okay, what about, well, you don't hear a confession, I guess, during the, the mass itself. But let me no, ask you but, this. But it's still, but we've talked about this before too, the, the um, when people are present in the church and they pray the prayer of confession, as long as they have contrition, the absolution does apply to them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate because it's fun. Well, don't so, do that. This is a Christian podcast. Wow. Um, what would you say then about hearing absolution, or sorry, hearing confession and pronouncing absolution over something like the phone or Zoom? I wouldn't do it over the phone or over Zoom. All right. That's what I was just wondering. I know some I'm pretty sure do. we're not allowed to, in fact. No, I, didn't, I mean, I would, I would equate that to the writing Right. Um, we yeah. read the, the web book and he said that uh, it's not valid when you do it over, uh, over text or over writing. I would assume that would apply to the phone and to um, mm -hmm. to things like Skype and Zoom as well. Yeah. My friend who is an Orthodox priest, a different one that I mentioned earlier, he um, he meets with his father confessor over Skype and he says he does confession. So I... the other problem with that, too, these days is that. Um, the seal is functionally lost. Yeah. I, because, I, I mean, 
people will watch that, like whether it's employees of Skype or people in the government or whatever. So I think you lose the seal if you do it that way. But yeah, I do mine um, over Snapchat. Oh, there you go. What could go wrong with that? I know. Um, all right. So one other question we got on Facebook is what about receiving? Uh, this is uh, Father Kyle Clark. Uh, what about distributed reserve sacrament taken during a video service? So the priest goes somewhere, gives the host to people. Uh, and then goes to church and live streams the service. And when it comes to the point of reception, instead of doing spiritual communion, people eat the bread and drink, or, well, I would assume it would just be the bread. Yeah. Um, in theory, I have less of a problem with that than with consecration over digital airwaves. Oh, well, sure. But I also would question the wisdom of leaving the sacrament with someone. Yeah, and I also think you're still not participating in that mass because that had to be pre-consecrated, right? There's something kind of disjointed in that. So I want to preface this by saying, I think today, right now, modern America, we are having this um, crisis because we are so used to going to the mass on a weekly basis, maybe even daily, a lot of churches. And there has never been anything to hinder us from going except our own laziness or will or whatever. But that has not been the case. There has been multiple scenarios in history where the faithful have gone long periods without receiving the Blessed Sacrament. I'm reminded, sadly, of the case in Japan, where after the shoguns uh, uh, rose back up into power, you've seen the movie Silence or read the book Silence. This has to do with that idea. And there were hundreds of Uh, maybe not a hundred years, I shouldn't say that, generations at least, of Japanese Catholics who didn't receive the sacrament. The the lay baptism went on, and all they heard about the Mass was from Grandma, who took it once or twice when she was a child. And that's all they ever knew of the Mass their entire life, because there there were no priests, there was persecution. So, I want to preface this by saying, I think that it is, we do not need to be so overly obsessed to the point of innovation. I heard of one church consecrating the elements and putting it on the church doorstep and letting in little baggies and letting people come by and pick them up and take them home and commune. I think it's okay for us to say, A, you're either going to go a couple weeks without the sacrament or spiritual communion, which the prayer book says you receive the very benefit of the body and blood of Christ, though you do not chew the elements. So anyway, Uh, I just don't think we should be looking for these innovative cases. All that to say, I don't want to critique priests or churches that are trying to give their people the sacrament. It's coming from a loving heart, knowing that Christ is truly present. Um, so I don't, it's, it's difficult. It's hard stuff. Two more Facebook questions that I think we need to discuss real quick, um, before moving on. Uh, the first is one, uh, that Hunter just asked, and it's a good one because we've talked about it before, Father. Um, so... Since live-streamed absolution isn't valid, how should we think about the blessing you guys do at the end of each episode? Which we've actually been critiqued by, uh, we've been critiqued by a brother priest for doing a blessing at the end of each episode. Um, And I would just say that the purpose of the blessing at the end of this episode is to um, evoke pious emotion uh, from listeners, and also to convey a sense of goodwill. Uh, to them. But I don't think it's the same as if we bless something in person. Uh, I think that there's still something a little bit different about that. So that would be my defense of it. But Father, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I would see the blessing at the end of the episode as uh, this as a wish prayer. That's a category of prayers, especially if you're studying the Psalms, a wish prayer. Um, 
it is a prayer over you, just as if we were to end uh, the podcast with an actual prayer. Would that be valid? Just because we're not in person? Well, sure, it's prayer. So we're praying a wish prayer over the listener. How that then translates into the same blessing at the end of the Mass or in another scenario, I think it's degrees of participation. And so I I would leave it up as a mystery. But because it's not a sacrament per se... I think we have a bit more flexibility in the use of blessings and words. I mean, we put blessings in writing, do we not? At the end of a letter, I mean, if you still write letters, that was a common thing in the ancient world. And so this is just an evolution of that medium. But the ancient church says you can't put an absolution in writing. So this is not a sacrament. There you go. Uh, one other question uh, asked by uh, my good friend Colton. Um, who's at uh, Beeson, your alma mater, Father Miles. Amen. Um, but he asks uh, about the state of Anglican preaching. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What are our thoughts about that? And I will say, um, overall, I think that modern Anglican preaching is not in a great place. Uh, I think that depending on what circles you run in, there are different pitfalls. So I think the big pitfall in Anglo-Catholic tradition is that sermons often become places where the priest talks a lot about what they're not. It's a good time for Protestant bashing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a good time for um, just kind of railing about, you know, modernity and secular culture and things like that. And, you know, all of those ideas aren't necessarily untrue, but the sermon is not the place to do it. So we have that problem. I think Anglo-Catholics can be a little bit too... um, at least attempt to be too intellectual sometimes in their sermons, you know, giving people lectures Mm -hmm. instead of actually preaching the gospel. Um, I think that's also a problem in reform preaching as well. I think in evangelical preaching, um, there's often a kind of piousness involved, uh, that can create things like to-do lists or, um, positive thinking style preaching. I think all of those are bad and miss the telos of what a sermon is supposed to be. So largely I find the state of Anglican preaching to be a little bit discouraging. However, I think there are reasons to be encouraged, uh, by it. And, um, for example, I just got to write the, uh, forward to a book that was penned by, uh, J. Brandon Meeks, who is a, um, writer over at the North American Anglican and is very involved in uh, Anglican Twitter. And his book is all about what Anglican preaching should be. And he looks at the history of Anglican preaching because we have a heritage of beautiful preaching. Um, and, uh, and he gleans a lot of insight from that really robust tradition. And, uh, so I'm encouraged with works like that as far as, um, you know, calling us to live up to what we have been um, set apart to do. So I think there are signs. I think there are really good Anglican preachers who are still alive um, and who are actively preaching. But uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that overall we need to do a lot of work here. Yeah, well said. Okay, so let's do um, let's do another uh, pre-asked question. Oh, here's one. Christopher asks this question, and this is another really good one. Um, Why is the APA so committed to the 1928 prayer book? Kind of reminds me of my old life as a Baptist with people totally committed to using the King James Version. It's because we think God himself wrote it. Exactly. Right. It was obviously, uh, yeah, it was. It fell down from the sky. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, but seriously, um, you know, I think 
to help answer the question, our recent episode on elevated language uh, is um, probably helpful. Um, you know, I think that the the older English in the prayer book is good uh, because it it creates a kind of othered experience. Uh, it's transcendent. It helps us access the transcendent better, whereas modern language simply doesn't. Um, so I think that would be my first step. But Father Miles, I know you have some more um, things well, to I th- say about that. I think the response given to your first step could say they just released the 2019 prayer book in traditional language. Yeah, that's true. I, it's not released yet, though, I don't think, is it? Uh, it? Well, I don't know if in hard copy. I know you can get it online. Great. Okay, so I would say we like the 1928 prayer book because first and foremost of its orthodox and classical expression of Anglican and Catholic theology. Uh, that is the main reason. That is the reason when you go back and read the people who helped found the continuum, when they talk about what was going on in the 70s in the Episcopal Church, it wasn't about God doesn't hear you unless you say thee and thou. It was the new prayer book is unorthodox, uncatholic, unchristian. That And maybe they're too strong. That's fine. But that was the reasoning. And so in this regard... It's better than most things produced since the 70s. We'll put it that way. However, and I think this is important to say, we aren't so committed to the 1928 prayer book or the prayer book tradition that we believe it is above critique itself. Most of us in the continuum actually use the Anglican Missal. If you're unfamiliar with the Anglican Missal, what it does is it takes the 1928 rite and it adds in things like the introit, the gradual, um, the sunum dignus, which is, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. It adds things like this throughout the liturgical rite to bring it into more conformity with the great Western tradition. A lot of the things that you see in like the 79 prayer book, the 2019, they've brought from the ancient missal, the the Western Roman missal, into the prayer book. And so all I would say is that we aren't so gung-ho about the 28. Now, some people are. There are some people who worship the 28. But we believe that it can be corrected. It can be filled out. And the missile does that. And so I would just say that from what I've gathered, being in the continuum for the short amount of time I've been in it, I've met very few priests who believe the 28 is the greatest thing to have ever happened since sliced bread. I, I will say one reason that I, I think that it's important to use the 28, and I, I've been in multiple contexts as far as what we use liturgically prior to being in the APA. Um, the parish I was in, Testrove, the ancient rite in the 2019 prayer book for a long time, but we also used the 1979 prayer book. And the refreshing thing about the 28 prayer book is how theologically clear it is. Mm. So for example, in the baptismal rite, there can be no question that the classical Anglican position is one of baptismal regeneration, yeah, that's right? That's right. also true in the 1662, right? Um, if you read the 79, it's a lot less clear. And the 2019 definitely does a better job than the 79 for sure. But I think the problem with the 2019 is largely one of the problems with ACNA, which is that there are so many different camps that are trying to be appeased that the rights all sort of they're a little at times overly preachy because each camp has to have its representation in the right. So I also think that's really true in the marriage ceremony, for example, um, 
and I know Miles Miles and I disagree on this, but I think that the marriage right in the 2019 is too preachy and that it's it's like, you know, one line you can tell is more Anglo-Catholic and the next line is a little bit more evangelical or reformed. And I, I think it's very clear to see that tension in the prayer book, which, you know, may not be the worst thing ever, um, for sure. I mean, it definitely reflects the reality of the communion uh, in which it was produced. But um, but like when I baptized our son, uh, Jude, um, I used the 28 prayer book even while I was in a 79 and 2019 parish because I thought theologically this is a lot clearer um, and I want it to be very clear what's going on with him right now. Yeah, and so maybe this is a good time to bring up a question that Jacob asked and it says, what are your thoughts on the 2019 prayer book? Which you seem to say uh, you've already given a little bit of that, that answer. Anything else you'd want to add to that? Um, I would just add, I mean, I think that it's a good step as far as creating an accessible uh, prayer book that is in more modern language. Um, so I certainly would prefer people use the 2019 over the um, 79 prayer book, but you know, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, I, and I think I agree. I actually have a pretty positive evaluation of the 2019 prayer book. I mean, there's obvious places where I um, push against it. Like we mentioned earlier, the, the ordination rites where it allows the intent to be uh, confused. I've even, one of our bishops, I won't say which one, but the way he described the 2019 prayer book was, it's like aspartame. It's good, but it ain't sugar. And so, <laughs> I, and I think that's actually a really fair evaluation from someone who's very Anglo-Catholic, who's very um, sold to the continuum uh, project, to be able to look at the 2019 prayer book and say, you know what, this thing's actually good. Um, and, and so if I were to hear a church, I've met the priest in the area, there's only, I'm the only continuing parish. The other three are ACNA and they all do the 2019 prayer book by the book. And that makes my heart rejoice because I have seen few, if any parishes in, in my experience in Anglicanism, even in the Episcopal church that kind of follow their prayer book by the book. So if you do the 2019 by the book, I think that you're, that that's, that's a great thing. I do wish there was a hymnal to go with it. I think they're working on it. No, I don't think. I think they. Oh no, not, not a hymnal. They're working on um, service music. Yeah, right. But I think a hymnal would be good because I know. I to me that seems like the sort of um, at least in my acne experiences that's sort of the area where there's a lot of anarchy as far as what uh, parishes do for music week to week. So you have some parishes that might use the 2019 word for word and also sing Hillsong. One of the great things about being in the continuum is that a lot of the decisions about church and worship are made for you by the bishops. And so I can't stand up on Sunday and just make things up. Or I can't for long until the bishop finds out. So I was kind of baffled. And this was when I was in the ACNA. I was gung-ho. I was coming in. I was baffled when I first heard that the bishops were not going to make the 2019 prayer book quote-unquote mandatory. I mean, that's always been the Anglican way, is the church produces a prayer book and the other ones are outdated. So, and I find that that can just add to so much confusion. What's the point of producing a prayer book if it's not going to be used by everyone? It kind of defeats the idea of common prayer. We did, uh, we did just get a flurry of comments that the book of common praise 2017, which is the REC hymnal That's is right. really good. And and that is true. That is a very good hymnal. And, and uh, somebody said that maybe they adopted it as their sort of official hymnal. So that would be good because that is a good hymnal for sure. Yeah, and, and Stephen Longclo says, the 2019 is only problematic if used problematically, i.e. adding one's own thoughts and prayers. And I I think I would give a hearty amen to that. All right, so what do you say we do uh, one more question? 
one more. Do we have time? Yeah, we I have think time. so. Yeah, we have yeah. time. Um, so we'll pick the juiciest one. How about that? Ooh, juicy. So so Libby uh, asks the question: Do charismatics have a place at the Anglican table? And obviously, um, you know, there are some people who uh, would say Anglican identity is three streams: that we have uh, Catholic stream and a uh, an evangelical stream and a charismatic stream and so they would say of course charismaticism uh, definitely uh, belongs at the table father miles what are your thoughts on that oh you allow me to go first great um so i think that we have to define our terms and i think there is i i spent 10 years in a traditional pentecostal church and by that i mean one that comes from the actual pentecostal revivals quote unquote from the 1900s a lot of people equate Pentecostal and charismatic, and that's not true. Charismatic is what happened in the 60s when mainline churches, Episcopal, not many Lutheran, but Catholics, uh, Presbyterians, when they received something akin to the Pentecostals' uh, expression of worship and theology 60 years prior. So, does Pentecostalism have a place in Anglicanism? I would say absolutely not. Because the understanding of Pentecostal theology proper is that God did something new and special in the 1900s or late 1800s at either Azusa Street or the school shed in North Carolina or the one in Oklahoma. There's kind of three places wherever you want to go, but a lot of people point to Azusa. God did something new and that really kind of everything prior to that was just leading up to this. And I think that just discredits an Anglican conception of history, of theology. You can't, it really produces, and I, I agree with Jerry McDermott on this, there's really four great traditions in the church today. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, you could put Anglican in there as a weird finger off that connects all of them. And then Pentecostal. It's its own tradition because it identifies itself as a different thing from the three of those. Okay, so what about charismaticism? Well, while I am critical of charismaticism, it at least submits itself to something outside of itself, meaning it sees itself within the structures of Anglicanism, and it submits to the liturgical and sacramental life of it. And so as much as I'll argue and debate kind of what's going on with speaking in tongues and with miraculous gifts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think that you have more room at the table if you think of yourself in those terms than you do as a Pentecostal. Yeah, I largely agree. Um with that. I definitely think they're separate traditions. I think that the problem in a lot of, at least at the pop level, is that Pentecostals sort of do the Holy Spirit well. Um, and I just, I don't think that's the case. And I think that if you go to any Anglican mass or ordination service or baptism, it's very clear that we have a strong pneumatology. So uh, it's not that Anglicans are weak on the Holy Spirit and Pentecostals are strong and somehow they're sort of, um, you know, supplementing where we are off. I don't think that's the case. Um, so I wrote an article a while back called um, Foothold for the Gospel, an Anglo-Catholic View of Speaking in Tongues. And I dropped it in the Zoom chat and on the Facebook feed if you're interested in uh, reading that. But basically, my argument um, kind of implicitly assumes what you just said, Father Miles, about them being two separate traditions. Uh, they're two different trajectories. And I think that um, 
one of the moves that charismatics make is to say that what happens at Pentecost in Acts 2 is somehow slightly different from what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So they're both Holy Spirit driven, but like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, they'll say is um, some sort of supernatural language. You know, this is speaking in the tongues of angels, he says in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I I don't buy that distinction. I think that what's going on at Pentecost is what Paul is addressing, which is that there are uh, human languages being spoken that people who are speaking them didn't know. That's why there's an emphasis on interpreting those tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and also why Paul says these gifts are for those outside the church, not those inside the church. Um, and so I think that uh, really, if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, with the um, assumption that he's talking about human languages, that as an argument, it makes a lot more sense than if you're importing some kind of heavenly language into the text. Um, so I would argue that that is, um, that that's the case. And I also think um, there are a number of connections between Paul's argument and Pentecost that make this um, case persuasive. So um, Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? That's what's going on. All the nations are being brought together in the gospel, right? And and the rest of Acts, the gospel is going to go out to the furthest, you know, ends of the world. Uh, and so I think that Paul sees tongues as footholds, hence the name of the article, footholds for the gospel. This is a way in a world where they don't have Google Translate, <laughs> in a way where, you know, once you travel, you know, 300 miles a different direction, you're speaking a totally different language than other people. Uh, this is a way that the gospel was able to spread so quickly and so pervasively around the world. Um, and so it was a necessary thing then, which is why I'm also comfortable using the term cessationist for my position, which uh, I think gets a bad rap a lot of the time. But basically, I would say that get, tongues has its particular telos and that given the spread of the church and the situation in which we find ourselves, uh, there really is not much of a need for scripturally what it has been described as doing. And I think it was John Owen who you won't hear him quoted positively much on this <laughs> podcast, but, uh, but he's, he kind of makes a double bind argument, uh, about tongues, which is that, uh, either scripture is sufficient or it's not. And tongues are having to, you know, supplement what God has given us in scripture. Uh, so I think that that's a somewhat persuasive argument. I would tweak it a little bit to be a little bit more sensible to Catholic theology. But um, I think we have to be really careful. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul does talk a lot about mystery. He uses that word a lot. But I think if you do a word study on how Paul uses the term mystery, he most of the time means Christ crucified. Oh, yeah, for sure. So what's the purpose of tongues? What's the purpose of prophecy? All these other extravagant gifts in 1 Corinthians. I think it has to be to proclaim Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That's right. Not to give you some secret word of knowledge about what you're going to be when you grow up or, um, you know, who you're supposed to marry or something like that. But but that this is, this is a, 
uh, Christocentric um, activity. Now, Stephen, Father Stephen brings up 1 Corinthians 13, although I speak in tongues of men and of angels, are tongues of angels a category in Paul's thought? My reading of that passage would be that he's using hyperbole there. Even if I speak in tongues so great as angels' tongues, but I don't have love, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm just a, ga- a gong, right? Even if I give everything away, but I don't have love, it doesn't benefit me at all, right? I think he's using hyperbole. Uh, yeah, there. I, I think that's right. The other Another explanation that I've heard there is that, as was common in the day, especially he's a Jew, he's a Pharisee, Paul, that is, is to think of Hebrew as an elevated language over and above and beyond all other languages. So even if he were to do everything in the divine tongue, quote unquote, the uh, Lashon HaKadosh, the holy tongue, Hebrew, even if he did that, it's still not good enough if he lacks love. And so maybe it's a liturgical comment as well that we need love going into our um, our prayers. But all that to say, I think the hy- hyperbolic understanding is probably spot on, but they, they actually come to the, at the same conclusion. So all that to say, I don't think he has in his mind a category of angelic speech. Yeah, or at least that angelic speech is something that we can do yeah practiced but but that even if you speak that way it, it doesn't matter because isn't i'd have to look it up and i think i closed my bible app but i'd be interested to see let's see how he phrases it in 13 if i have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and mm. all knowledge and if i have all faith so, so as to move mountains mm. That's to me, that's clearly hyperbolic. I mean, Jesus uses the um, moving of mountains, you know, in the Gospels, but also hyperbolically, I think, as well. For sure. I think we just have to be careful. I think a lot of times charismatics put a lot of emphasis on that verse, and I'm not sure it can actually support the weight of things that they want to to make it be. And Father Stephen rightly comments on the Facebook feed, although I speak, although I'm speaking tongues of men and the 28 prayer book of common prayer but have not love and that is true and maybe <laughs> that true. is that is probably a better application of that verse than you can speak in some um in tongues as it's defined by modern pentecostals <clears throat> well i think we've run out of time i think so yeah this was this was a lot of fun though i this really enjoyed it i hope you all who are listening live enjoyed it as well um maybe we'll do a couple more episodes like this especially since with things being shut down we all have we have nothing else so to much do. time yeah yeah Well, great. So So now comes the point of the show where we talk about uh, what we're into. Father Miles, what are you into lately? Yeah, so being quarantined, of course, means we get to watch TV. But being in Lent, we're trying to watch less TV. But we have settled, my wife and I, every night we watch one episode of Longmire. Now, we've been referencing Father Stephen Longclaw because he's been giving us some questions and comments on the Facebook feed. I think he told me about this show back in seminary. We went to seminary together. And... I thought that sounds awful because it's it's set in the West. I don't really like Westerns. Uh, I know I'm weird. Like, I know everyone thinks like Tombstone's the best thing to ever be filmed. I don't really like Westerns. It's just not my style. But I, I wanted to give this a try because there was nothing else that seemed interesting. And it's actually more murder mystery set in modern day West, Wyoming. Uh, and it is so good. I really like it. We're only about a season and a few episodes in, and we are already hooked. So I'm enjoying that. It's helping us get our mind off of the apocalypse that's going on around us. Well, we are also into a TV show, and uh, it's Parks and Rec, which we're re-watching again. 
and it's so good. I forgot just how good that show is. And my friend, uh, Cole, who uh, hopefully isn't listening to this because he's a Pentecostal, um, but he uh, gave me the great, he's a really academic person, and he gave me a great comparison that The Office is like existentialism and Parks and Rec is Thomism. Oh my gosh. That's and the amazing. more that he, I think about that, the more that is so right. <laughs> so anyway, so we're enjoying watching this very Thomistic uh, TV show of Parks and Rec. You should explain that for yeah. So so for me, um, the office is a lot about the absurdity of life and making meaning out of it. So like a good episode, I think that would back up what my friend was saying is that is the episode of the Office Olympics, where they make up all those games and stuff, right? And that's like it. That's what brings significance to their day. Is they just sort of made this absurd thing up because. Their life there is absurdity anyways. It's pointless, yeah. Yeah, right. Whereas Parks and Rec, if you really follow the arc of the show and the character development, it's really about each of those characters finding their natural telos, you know, and living into it. Mm. Um, and so by the end, it's like, it's not that they've created their own meaning, but it's like they've discovered a meaning for them that already exists. Yeah, realism. That's pretty great. Yeah, isn't that cool? So I, I uh, yeah, I'm enjoying watching that show now with that in mind, that that's what it is. And probably explains why I, even though we just watched The Office 2 recently, I think I might like the later seasons of Parks and Rec a little bit better. Parks and know. Rec is really good. It is really good. So anyway, so we started that the other night and, and we've just been watching it and it's, I love it. So that's what we've been into lately. For sure. Great. Great. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, it seems like most people uh, enjoyed the live stream. So we'll, like I said, we will look into doing that again. But if you like what we're doing uh, before you sign off, uh, please um, go uh, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And also be sure to share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. You can also email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. Father Miles, would you give us a, uh, a blessing to evoke pious emotions within us uh, across the airwaves? I would be happy to. Now may the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.